and looked at this beautiful view that you all have and were blown away. What an incredible place this is. So I'm so grateful to, to be here from Tallahassee. Um, as Father Joe said, my wife Rachel and I, with my sons James and John, served uh, for 16 years in Peru as missionaries there, uh, which is in part why Father Joe wanted me to come and speak with you all uh, this evening. Uh, but I actually want to go back a little bit beyond that uh, to a time just before when I was serving actually as a missionary in India. That's where I was before I went to Peru. And before going there, I prepared myself by reading several different biographies of people, mainly from England and from Ireland, who went as missionaries to India in the 1800s. You may have heard of some of them, people like William Carey uh, and uh, Thomas Walker and Amy Carmichael. Uh, these were heroes of that time. And many of these missionaries' names are written on the walls of St. Augustine's College Chapel, which is in Canterbury. Don't know if you've ever been there before. Some of you might have. Um, and by each name of, the, of the, each name of a missionary up there on the wall, you see two dates. You see the date that they left for India, and then that is followed by the date when they died. And it's pretty remarkable to look at these names and these dates because, unfortunately, many of them died very quickly. They succumbed often to diseases like typhoid or cholera or, or often dysentery. Some of them were killed by the locals who mistook them for enemies. In fact, the average lifespan of those missionaries having arrived there in India was an unbelievable Six to eight months. And these missionaries knew the risks before they left. They understood this, but they were still prepared to give up their very lives. They actually, many of them, left England with their belongings packed not in suitcases, but in a coffin with a one-way ticket. That's the kind of commitment that they had. Well, when I was in India, I had the opportunity to travel all around the, the, the southern part of the country, which is where most of those missionaries went. And I had the privilege at one point of staying in the home of the Bishop of Turinel Valley, a diocese which owes its whole existence to the faithful witness of those early missionaries. And the walls of my, my bedroom and that guest room were just lined with the, the pictures of these courageous heroes who had gone before. People who, unlike me, didn't have any malaria pills to take. People who traveled around on the back of an ox cart from village to village, never knowing whether the people in the next town would accept them or stone them to death. In any case, while I was staying there, at the bishop's house, I became very, very ill. Um, the bishop was a very, very nice man, but he fed me some very, very bad fish. <laughs> and I, I had the worst uh, stomach uh, issues that I've ever had in my life, which is saying something, and ended up in the hospital. And uh, I remember I was there, I was lying there, and, and I started to cry. 
And the, the kind gentleman, the Indian man who was sitting beside me taking care of me, he was very concerned. He said, Alan, uh, are you okay? Are you, are you in pain? Is everything all right? And I said to him, um, no, actually, I am just filled with such a sense of awe and joy because I have this incredible privilege of experiencing just a tiny piece of the sufferings that those heroic ministries, that missionaries suffered before me. I knew I was going to get better. I knew that I was going to be okay. But these people who went before me were willing to give up their whole lives to be there in that place. And then to look around and to see this church, which had been built on that sacrifice, on the, on, by their bloodshed. It was amazing to me. And needless to say, that experience had a profound impact on my life. And it's become a kind of touchstone moment for me whenever I return to think about what mission is all about. And the reason why is because that story that I just told you is, is a story that kind of echoes what we might call the master's story of all Christianity. It's a story about our participation in the love of God, living according to the fundamental pattern set by Jesus on the cross. I want us to spend the rest of our time this evening unpacking that statement. And to do so, I want to just return to some very basic things about our faith. I want us to return to the cross, which is very, very appropriate here in Lent. And I want us to consider what are the characteristics of the love that we see manifested there on the cross. We see the ultimate illustration of other-centered sacrificial self-giving. You all know the story. Jesus laid down his own life for our sake. He was willing to suffer tremendous loss to himself. To even give up himself to death, himself up to death, so that we could live. So cross love is not at all like the love that this world Right? Cross love is a radical love. It is marked by extraordinary selflessness. And it's important for us to understand that, that Jesus didn't practice cross love in spite of his being God. We might think that, and people often do, because the cross looks like vulnerability, it looks like weakness, which of course, seems very contrary to God's nature. But the truth is exactly the opposite. Christ willingly laid down his life precisely because he is God. Cross love is the perfect revelation of who God is and what God does. You'll remember that the Apostle John said, God is love. Well, the cross shows us very specifically what divine love looks like. Right? 
God is not just any old love. God is cross Or to put it another way, the life of God is fundamentally cruciform, cross-shaped. And for that reason, cross-love is at the very heart of what is called the missio dei, the mission of God here on earth. In fact, the book of Romans says that it is on the cross that we find the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation. Behind all that meekness, that vulnerability, behind his submission, his lowly humility, his selfless servanthood was power. The power of love to redeem and transform our world. And so that's what Paul focused on whenever he proclaimed the gospel. It's the content of what he called the word of life. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, Paul wrote, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so, of course, that's the message that we too are called to proclaim. And like Paul, we're called to proclaim it not only with our lips, but in our lives. By imitating it. By embodying it. In fact, that's the foundational pattern for all of Christian life. Remember what Jesus himself commanded. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. If anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his own cross. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. In other words, our mission, if it is indeed a faithful mission, will echo and embody God's mission. It will consist in the reproduction in our own lives of Christ's cruciform love. We proclaim his death and resurrection by dying and rising with him. That's how we tell the story, truly. That's how we hold out the word of life to those around us. And this is a point that that the sacraments are designed to make crystal clear to us. Right? Think about what happens, for example, in holy baptism, which is the moment when we are all incorporated into Christ, when we become Christians. Paul wrote to the Romans, Don't you know that all who are baptized into Christ are baptized into his death? Those words have kind of a, a double meaning, don't they? On the one hand, it's talking about a once-for-all thing, Right? Uh, we are, our old self is put to death so that when, then we can be born again to a new life. But then second, it tells us what that new life in Christ looks like. The new life is Christ-like life. And therefore, it is cruciform. It is a life marked by continual death to self as we, in union with Christ, practice that self-sacrificial cross 
That descent we make into the waters of baptism sets the pattern for the rest of our Christian lives. And the same is true with the Holy Eucharist that we just received, right? Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians. Whenever you drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Why does it say that? Because by drinking of the cup, we're not just remembering Christ's suffering. We are doing that. But we're also agreeing to participate, to participate in it. We acknowledge that Christ shed his blood for us. And remembering that he commanded us to love others as he has loved us. Even to the point of shedding blood. We join ourselves to him. Are drawn into his life. And then following that pattern set by the wine. We're empowered to carry out the same mission. The same cross love. That is the essence of our Christian witness. We testify that Jesus is truly alive and at work in us when people see his death reenacted in us. All too often we forget that, don't we? All too often we think, we act like our, our Christian faith is mainly about uh, what we think about intellectually, that we have the right doctrine. Or maybe we think, oh, it's, it's all about going to church on Sundays and, and maybe saying a prayer before meals and, and so forth. All that's good, but true living faith is exercise always in self-giving cross-love. Paul said that explicitly in Galatians. What really counts, he says, is faith working itself out in love. And James too, he warned us. Faith is, that is not accompanied by works he means works of love. Faith that is not accompanied by works of love is dead. Imagine what our world would be like if we all heeded Christ's command. If we were governed in all of our dealings with one another by the way of the cross. If our common life together was ordered in a manner worthy of the gospel. What would this community be like if none of us sought our own advantage but always looked to the interests of others? If all of our pride and selfish ambition were put aside in order to mutually serve one another with humility? How would cross-love affect our relationships if we were truly committed to putting it into practice in our families, in our marriages? in all of our business relationships. What kind of a public witness to Jesus would we give to the society around us? It's hard to think of any principle more important, more revolutionary than this. Because it is through Christ's love that we get to abundant life. That's the other side of the equation. Because if we die with Christ, we will also live with him. It's one of the remarkable paradoxes of the Bible, right? By losing our lives for Christ's sake, we end up saving them. And that's because living in cross love is what real life looks like. You know that old saying, 
you haven't really lived until you have loved. Get rid of that. Well, it's true. Because ironically, by denying ourselves, by giving ourselves up in love, we fulfill life's very purpose. We give meaning to life by participating in something very much greater than ourselves, right? Something eternal. And that's why Paul said, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to him in his death. Which sounds like an awfully strange thing to say, right? That you would actually desire that kind of suffering. But he said that because he knew that union with Christ in death is actually the path to joy. He knew that joy is found only in relation to the God who gives himself up in love and not in a self-centered existence. Death and cross love is also the key to building what the Old Testament calls shalom. I'm sure you've heard that word before, right? Have you heard the word shalom? Usually translated peace, right? But it means an awful lot more than just peace. It's a word that kind of encompasses all kinds of wonderful things like, like wholeness and health and, and soundness and safety. It's essentially the abundant life right, that God wants us to enjoy corporately. Shalom is what God's kingdom is all about. And we become instruments of that kingdom of shalom when we practice cross love, right? We give witness to what God's good plan is for all of humanity when we walk that path. But the order of the pattern is essential, right? Don't forget it. You can't get to new life without first going through death. You can't get to shalom without first Dying to self. There's a collect that uh, we say in morning prayer on uh, Fridays, which captures this idea really wonderfully. It says this, Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified. Mercifully grant that we walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Right? Now, unfortunately, as, as you and I know all too well, there are many people in this world who not only refuse to follow Christ's example, but they call that whole pattern of dying and rising foolishness. As far as they're concerned, there's nothing stupid than sacrificing your own interests for somebody else. Self-denial, they say, is for losers. Instead, they follow a very different creed. Always look out for number one. Use your power to get ahead of others. Take every opportunity to build yourself up. Only care for others if doing something to will benefit you in some way. Fight those whose interests don't align with your own. Crush anyone who gets in the way of you getting what you want. That's the world's pattern, right? Self-absorption, greed, selfish ambition. It's a way that utterly contradicts the way of the cross. 
To live in that way is, in fact, to be an enemy of the cross. And ultimately, it is to reject love. And the best way to describe that mentality is demonic. Do you remember what uh, Jesus said to Peter when Peter rebuked him for saying that he was going to die on the cross? Get behind me, Satan, is what he said. The devil loves that mentality because he hates abundant life. He hates healed relationships. He hates a peaceful world. And he's been remarkably successful because anti-cross behavior has been normalized. In fact, it's something that society often applauds, that society rewards, to the point where the people whom we uphold, all of our, our celebrities and our politicians and our great business leaders, they're often brazen in their practice of selfishness. They boast in all the things that they've accumulated for themselves, heedless of whether or not they've done so at the expense of others. But Paul tells us plainly, their glory is in their shame. That is, the things that they glory in are shameful. I have often told you of the heroes, and now I tell you even with tears, their end is destruction. Ironically, by seeking to preserve their own lives, they end up losing them. Right? Well, Lent is the perfect time for us to reflect, not only on the state of our world, but on our own personal situation. And of course, the truth is that none of us follows the way of the cross perfectly, do we? There's nothing more difficult than accepting that and working it out in our lives. There is an old saying that I love. It was, uh, it's from Amy Carmichael, who was one of those missionaries to India from the early uh, 1900s. And she said this, The feet of those who walk closely behind Jesus are pierced by the thorns that fall from his crown. I'm going to say it again. The feet of those who walk closely behind Jesus are pierced by the thorns that fall from his crown. Following Jesus is painful. It will, by definition, involve loss. Especially when the rubber hits the road. When we have to apply cross love in the nitty gritty of our relationships every single day. I know that I often struggle to follow Jesus' footsteps. But we can speak of a, a general trajectory of our lives, an orientation, right? Because at the end of the day, there are two paths that we can choose to take. Two ways, and they lead in opposite directions. Ultimately, we will either choose the way of cross-love or the way of self-love. We will either choose the pattern of the cross or we will become its enemy. And I, I know that may sound like an overstatement, it may sound like I'm being very extreme, but listen to what Jesus himself said about whether a compromise can be made. Whoever does not bear his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It's an incredibly costly choice, 
an incredibly consequential one, right? Maybe the most consequential choice you'll ever make. So much so that, that Paul says that we should make it with fear and trembling. It's also a choice that we don't just make once and for all. It's a choice that we have to make every single day. Because we have to remain in cross love. We have to persevere in cross love. Temptations are going to arise to throw us off that track, to return to selfishness. To selfishness. But Lent tells us too that when we mess up, and we will mess up, there's always a way to get back on track, right? Through repentance. No matter how far we've gone down the wrong way, we can always return and say yes to cross love and start following Jesus again. And the good news is this. If you choose that way of the cross, you'll never walk it alone. The living Jesus has sent His Holy Spirit to be with us as we go, to empower us. Listen to what Paul says about it. He says, as you strive to walk in cross love, to work it out, right, in your daily life, it is God who works in you. Right? The life of the God whose very nature it is to give Himself up is at work within us. So Paul says, Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us. His Spirit inspires us. His Spirit gives us the strength that we need to pull off what we could never accomplish in our own strength. And so we don't give up. We don't lose hope. Like Paul, forgetting what lies behind, we press on towards that goal. We pursue that upward call that Jesus has given us. Take up your cross, he says. For whoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. Now that's the meat of what I wanted to share with you all this afternoon, this evening. Um, I do want to know that there's often time for questions and answers and discussion afterwards, and I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I do want to also, though, add, first of all, a little addendum, uh, a little extra at the end of footnote. Uh, and, and that is to say this, when you all think about your Lenten disciplines that you're practicing, many of you right now, fasting, prayer, reading your Bibles, whatever it may be that you're doing right now, a great thing to do would be to consider, how are my disciplines contributing to cross love? Okay? How are they ultimately leading to this ultimate goal of following Jesus in self-giving, sacrificial love. Right? If we simply are engaging in those disciplines for our own spiritual wealth, um, that may not be enough. Right? we got to think, well, what is that for? What are we moving towards? And it's very appropriate that we keep on talking about cruciformity. Right? Because if, if you think about the cross... The cross has two dimensions. One is vertical and one is horizontal. And the two things that are most important in our Christian life are our vertical relationship with God, love of God, right? And our horizontal relationship with other people, loving our neighbors as Christ has loved us. So the question is, as we engage in fasting, prayer, and Bible study, 
And what is it leading us to? Is it bringing us to a place where we are better equipped to practice cruciform love? I want to give you one example of how this works. Um, I recently spoke to a, a lady named Sarah who wanted to practice fasting for the very, very first time. She'd never done it before. And so she decided that, that she would try a kind of medium-sized fast, or what she thought was medium-sized. She said, I'm going to fast for three days. I'm not going to eat anything at all. I'm only going to drink a, a little bit of water each day. And uh, she started off doing this, and, and the first day, everything was, was pretty good. No problems. Second day, not so good. And by the third day, she could not get out of bed. <laughs> she had absolutely zero energy. She was cold and shivery. Um, and, and she felt like she was just, just you know, going to die or something. She hated it. And then she started thinking to herself, wow, if, if, if this is the way I feel after three days of fasting, how must it? How must pregnant mothers feel in countries where they commonly don't have enough to eat? What about uh, mothers who are breastfeeding their children, where basically they're starving? How do they do that? And you see, there was a flip in her mentality. She started to think about others, right? And that led her to be involved in the lives of pregnant mothers overseas who were undergoing suffering. Right? That was what that discipline led to. And for me, that's an awesome example, a perfect example, of how we can turn our own disciplines into something that looks like cross Now, uh, Father Joe, do I still have time? Do we have time for questions? Do we have... So, uh, I, I, well, all, everything that I said, I talked about things on a very, very basic level, and there's a great deal of depth beyond that, all of that. So, if you have any questions, I'd love to talk to you more. Please. How long were you in India before you took sick? Uh, oh, good question. Uh, probably seven months or so. Yeah. Yeah. Alan, will you repeat the questions that you're asking? Sorry, yes, he asked me, how long was I in India? Before I got sick, yes. The first, the first several months, they were they were really good. They kept me eating a nice little diet, you know, that I would uh, not get sick on. I was really you know, taken care of. And then when I started traveling down south, that's when things got a little hairy. <laughs> and you would think that in the bishop's house, you know, I, I might be okay, but uh, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Is that thought ever to your mind as everybody else before the, the earlier folks that? Seven to eight months and they were... Yeah, that's a great point. He said, did that bring into your mind the fact that, you know, for all these other missionaries, about seven, eight months into it, they were dead. Uh, uh, at the moment, I actually didn't think that, but, you know, that's, kind of, that's a good point. You know, a great point. That, and, um, yeah, I mean, I had... I, I could go to the hospital and get my drip. You know, to get me on drip. Uh, at, like I said, they didn't have anything like that. You know, they didn't have the malaria pills that I had. Uh, you know, so maybe I would have died too had I lived back then and gone. Yeah. Yes. 
they'd be like, oh, yes, please. You know, they're eager for that kind of thing. See, the problem, though, is that, that their discipleship in Peru is extremely superficial, right? Because, um, well, the Roman Catholic Church does not have enough priests and missionaries to reach out to everybody in the country. Um, so a lot of these people, especially in the rural regions, they will only see a priest once a year on their village's saints' day. And the priest will come and celebrate Mass, maybe have a little tiny talk, and then leave. So that's the extent of their Christian discipleship. Right? That's all they get. Um, so there's a desperate need for people to, to learn more about what their Christianity me, uh, is about. Right? Um, and there's a lot of secrets, which is to say that it mixed in their Christianity with all kinds of um, older um, Incan stuff, you know, uh, that is that, that makes it very odd. Right? Um, so that's that's that, that's what it's like in Peru and in India, like you said, they don't have any of our Western culture or Western background. The church has not been well established there, so you are beginning from a very different place, uh, a place of uh, usually hostility. Um, so. How long were you in India? I was in India for a year. Yeah. They only let you have a year. They don't have religious visas. They only have uh, tourist visas and they let them for a year. So, they keep going. Was your stay in Peru in rural areas or, yeah. or uh, city? We, we, lived, we lived for five and a half years in Peru's second city, which is called Arequipa. It's up, uh, it's up in the Andes. Um, at about 8,500 feet. Um, both my boys were born there, James and John. Uh, and that is a town, a city of about a million. And uh, then we moved to a circle where 11 years in Lima, which is an enormous cosmopolitan city when you count everybody in the shanty towns, which they don't on their official uh, population numbers. Uh, there it's about 11 million. Yes? Um, actually, it's two, two questions together. Were you predominantly in the south of India? Yes, I was. Okay. I've been in the well, south. Well, I, where I, where I was was actually dead center, but I traveled a lot down south. Yeah. I, I've been in the south of India yes. as, as a tourist. Yes. And um, the thing that I came away with is that there were a number of Christians yes. a number of churches. Yes. Not a lot, but there, there were some. Yeah. And the thing that I really came away with was that the fact that the Christians and the Muslims, uh, anyway, that they all were, from the tourist point of view, working pretty well together. Mm -hmm. Did I, was that your experience there? Well, I'm glad that was your experience, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on what, kind, what part of India, India you know, you're talking about. If I, Southern India, um, I, I don't know if that's always the case. But, but I'm glad that that was what you saw because that's it. Uh, the, uh, I think probably that, that's the case simply because, as you said, Christianity is much better established in southern India. There's a lot of talk about St. Thomas. St. Thomas was... That's right. St. Thomas uh, actually went to India uh, and established uh, the, the Mar Toma Church, uh, which is in Kerala, you see, you see where he established it way back in the first century. Uh, it's an incredible, incredible place. 
in, in the state of Kerala on the south uh, west coast. Uh, but yes, you, that's because of all those wonderful heroic missionaries that went there in the 1800s. Um, in, by contrast, in the north, you have less than 1% Christian. So, huge difference. Huge difference. What are your challenges in your current role as a missionary on a college campus? <laughs> <laughs> Legion. Yeah. Uh, um, well, to be honest, I think right now, uh, the biggest challenge is helping students come back from COVID. Um, I think there's a lot of people are still um, just frazzled. I think it's almost as though I kind of described it as people still being in, in rehab after surgery or something like that. All of the ministries are just in rehab still. Um, the, my my predecessor was very good, and, uh, but he had a he had a child who was very vulnerable from COVID, and um, and he could not really come in and do person-to-person -person ministry, and so everything was shut down for a good year and a half. And uh, so this, you know, that really took a toll on uh, things, and that's why you know, I came in. He, he, he left here and did something that wouldn't be so dangerous. Um, that's how I came in. Uh, so that, that really, to be honest, is, is the biggest thing for us at the moment. Um, but also, uh, it's a, it's a church planting kind of enterprise and that you have to do every year because you're having students turning over all the time. Uh, and usually, you know, they're with you for maybe a year or two years and then they're gone and you've got to come up with a new crop of people. So you don't have any kind of permanency in, your, in what's going on. And that can be very difficult. You can even imagine if in this church, you know, all of your leaders suddenly stay out of that after four years. That's the way it is. So... Do you find that uh, young people are seeking community? Absolutely. Yes, yes. Um, it obviously, um, uh, well, uh, maybe not obviously, but um, loneliness is a huge factor for students. Loneliness is really big. So if you all have opportunities, I can tell you, here in this area, where you can somehow um, come alongside students who are in college, maybe, I don't know, you maybe have students from this, uh, this congregation that are in college, you know, right now. Um, but, you know, doing things to, to kind of show them that they're loved and that they're cared for and that you remember them, uh, you know, they're, they're lonely. Um, and uh, they're looking for, 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 you know, for, for help. I think a lot of them appreciate, uh, especially older people like us, uh, you know, who are able to kind of be their surrogate moms and dads, you know, come in and, and, and say, uh, we're, we're going to help you. So. Father, making a move. One, one more you got. <laughs> <laughs> you got 45 seconds. I mean, it's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, gosh, Alan, thank you so much for being with us tonight. It's really grateful. Well, I, I do have a question for you. One, we, now it is true that we have a lot of Gators in this congregation. But, but uh, if if by chance we had some Seminoles who are interested in uh, supporting 
uh, your ministry and the ministry of Ruby Hall and the gospel work that is doing uh, that is happening there? How how could they do that? Um, if you go on the diocesan website, they do have a page that is you know giving to uh, ministries of the diocese, and in fact, um, the ministry at FSU is a mission of the diocese. Right? It's not its own. Uh, think we obviously can't be self-supporting because students don't have any money, right? So, uh, so yes, we are fully supported, really, by um, diocesan funding. Um, so if you go to the diocesan website, it has a place on a drop-down menu where you can look and you can give to the Episcopal University Center at FSU. Fantastic. Yes. And I, I will tell you, I, I just think it is, it is fantastic we have... In this diocese, I think the two best, or two of the best college ministries in the entire National Episcopal Church. It is, it is really, really good. And probably, uh, I can't think of another diocese that has two uh, that I would put up against our two. Uh, I mean, there's a couple that have one really good one, but, but I can't think of another that has two. <laughs> so, uh, it is fantastic. So thank you so much. Next week, we will have uh, the Reverend Teresa Siegel. And uh, Teresa is the chaplain, the one of three chaplains, but, but the main chaplain, the head chaplain, Dean of Student Life at the Episcopal School of Jacksonville. And uh, she has become a good friend. She is uh, on the standing committee with me. She was uh, on the nominating committee. And uh, she won't talk about that, but she, um, but she is uh, excited to be here. I'd actually, she was the, the person that was slated to be up next when I had to cancel the series a couple of years ago. Uh, and so I'm excited to finally have uh, Teresa come back next week. So we'll have the same format uh, next week. Looking forward to having you back here. Will you offer us a blessing? Love to. Please stand. The blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God.